It's Friday, May 1st. Welcome to episode 25 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, digital strategist at Lullabot. Every couple of weeks, I get together with interesting people from the world of content strategy and digital publishing to chat about the latest news, interesting projects they're working on, and fun stuff like that. This week, our guest is Naz Urbina. He's a content strategy consultant, the co-author of uh, Content Strategy, Connecting the Dots Between Business Brand and Benefits. He's a workshop organizer and a frequent speaker on uh, the topic of agile content. Welcome to the show, Naz. Hello. Well, thank you. I think we first met, I think, at least a couple of years ago online um, as I was starting to try to poke around into the world of like semi-structured content and things that didn't like necessarily map to databases and posts, you know, the kind of structure that a lot of web stuff is familiar with. And um, I, I want to say I, I really appreciate it. You were, you were one of those people that I that was a huge, huge help as I started wading into those very deep waters. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I don't think you've ever said that before. Um, that's a uh, that's a very nice thing to hear. And uh, um, I do remember very clearly because I was kind of reaching out to the web community. This was a while back, and saying, um, "Guys, we need to talk because the web really needs to look at some of these ideas." But we're but there's a lot of confusing language and and uh, you know talk going around. And let's try to get together and discuss terminology and concepts so we can get all on the same page. And you're one of the few people who actually reached out from the web community and really engaged. And and subsequently started saying crazy things about maybe we should put XML in the body field and stuff like that. And it, it was it was all over from there. Shh, shh, shh. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, Jeff. <laughs> Don't get carried away. <laughs> let's, let's not get too crazy. Um well, you know, it, it's actually interesting because like you, your history is like really deep in the world of like, I, I, I guess I, I think of it as like classically structured content. You know, um, I, I don't in any way mean to like, I guess, typecast you, but like things like, you know, XML and, you know, DITA and technologies like that. Those have a, a past that goes pretty far back compared to a lot of the web platforms that, that are currently popular how did you get involved in that stuff um yeah i it was a bit funny because i was born into that stuff and skipped the whole regular web uh it was which was a very odd way to get started i right out of university i joined a company that was making one of the first structured authoring tools and this this company got started like talking about 20 years ago so this was at a time when tools of that kind had to worry about whether attribute values had two or four characters because of memory limitations. Ah, the good old days. Yeah, so this is ages ago. And right around the um, dot-com bubble, I was trying to get uh, into the industry and I got a job in the London office working for this company uh, called SoftQuad. And they were making a product called XMetal, which was one of the first uh, WYSIWYG semantic structured authoring tools. Uh, it was only about 10 years later that I found out that WYSIWYG in the web world means unstructured mess where authors go crazy. 
You know, that that's actually something that I, I was going to ask about because, you know, again, coming from, you know, a traditionally, you know, web-based background, WYSIWYG in our world is has such a radically different meaning. It's, you know, oh, like, totally. Dream, like Dreamweaver. You know, you, you go in yeah. and it, the idea is this perfect one-to-one correlation between what someone will hopefully see when they view a page and what you're editing. But it, so what does it mean in that other world? <laughs> Um, the, that, that group also kind of has acknowledged that that term doesn't make a lot of sense because the whole point of structured semantic markup is so that you can do the kind of things that the whole world wants to do now. You, so you can write once, uh, publish everywhere for any kind of device or context. So WYSIWYG is, is an illogical thing. Uh, so they've actually moved over to saying WYSIWOO. I don't know if you heard that one. I haven't. I've heard WYSIWYM. Um, what you see is what you mean. Um, what, what's WYSIWOO? What, WYSIWOO is what you see is one option. Oh, see, I, okay, I see that. Yeah, I, I like so that. that what you see is you. the idea is you need some sort of non-code um, representation of the content so you can write like a human being. So we were, I was working at a, at a, at a software vendor that made a tool that gave you a layout that you could meaningfully type into, like headings were a certain size and they went down in descending order, but headings didn't have to be called H. They could be called, um, you know, product info, uh, or they could be within a section called product info and then they could just have a heading which they reused everywhere and it wasn't numbered and it, how big it was would be, would be applied dynamically depending on where you placed that section within a hierarchy of, of, uh, of a deliverable. So basically you have the, it, it brings a presentation style to what you're editing, but it doesn't necessarily promise that this is what it is going to look like in any particular delivery format for an end user. It's just, this is an assistive tool while you're editing. Exactly. In fact, it goes, uh, to the other extreme, they tend to be reasonably plain. You know, just the headings are black, text is black. You might get a gray in there somewhere. Um, you could fancy it up if you want, and and these days many of them are uh, getting really fancy with forms, uh, drop down boxes and combo and radio controls and pop ups and all that kind of thing. Uh, but back in the day, it was quite straightforward to make sure you were clear. It's not going to look like this. This is just for you, so you can sensibly author. So the idea was to communicate as much meaning to the author as possible visually, not to communicate the the final presentation. Formatting, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, there's a client that um, that we've been working with on and off that they actually did that style of they did that kind of approach using an XML based um, in browser authoring tool, and they layered that on top of uh, Drupal's body field. So they're using Drupal's body field just to store XML, and they have I think like uh, I think you know 15 different elements that they support in it, and their XML tool formats them to communicate meaning to their authors rather than trying to do the, you know, increasingly elaborate presentation of lots of, you know, traditional HTML markup. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, um, and that, and that's the way it should be done. Honestly, that's the, the, a lot of the conclusions that are being come to now in the wider community are the, are the same conclusions because there's just no other way. You know, you need to be able to have your CMS and plug in structure and make that, reasonably transparent or very much under the hood 
uh, as far as, as the author is concerned. Uh, and th- that method of taking your old authoring space and plonking in a structured authoring tool in place that deals with a much more limited vocabulary of what the author can do, uh, but every, every element that they can use is that much more meaningful. That's, that's, uh, that's quite a proven technique for some very complex uh, in applications. Yeah. So, okay. So, one of the topics that you write a lot about and talk a lot about um, is uh, adaptive content. Um, we've got a lot of different, you know, terms floating around in the industry right now. You know, intelligent mm-hmm. content. You know, everyone's been talking about structured content for a long time, but you know, adaptive content. What does that mean? So. I'm actually gestating a article right now, which is adaptive versus intelligent content, because there's a lot of kind of confusion there. The uh, what I, I would call I would call this kind of a uh, levels of specialization within the terms. So kind of like doctors and dentists kind of thing. So all adaptive content is intelligent content. All structured uh, all intelligent content is structured content. But it doesn't necessarily go the other way. So the fact that something is structured, you know, doesn't necessarily mean it qualifies for the adaptive label. Correct, and okay. it doesn't even it maybe doesn't even qualify for the intelligent label mm-hmm. because um, it, it, it that it has to do with uh, layers of of meaning and um, how closely and how much work you've put into adapt um, specifying tagging and metadata for users. So if we start with structured, structured is, you know, blocking things out in in identifiable blocks. So that those could be section, heading, paragraph, table. Those are structures. And that also that already gets you some benefit. If you have a structured language, you can do single sourcing to different formats. And you can say, okay, well, this is what tables look like on this site. This is what they look like on that site. This is what they look like in print. This is what they look like um, on a on a leaflet that you hand out, or in it, or in a you know, in a manual or a textbook or a whatever it is you make dictionaries. Um, if you want to add intelligence, then you have to go beyond saying this is a section with a title and say things like this is a product overview and this is a product name. Uh, so then you're getting more sensible human meaning into it. And that's why, that's where the intelligent idea comes in is you're adding those semantic or meaning-oriented labels into your vocabulary. And in that, in that realm, the idea is that you're not just leaning on, say, like the vocabulary of something simple like HTML. You're actually creating a vocabulary that's tailored to the type of content that you have. So you have like product heading, not just an H3 with a class slammed onto it. Exactly. And the, re- the reason for that and, uh, is because it's, it's more immediately clear. And from, uh, from I, it, honestly, it's a, kind of a techie thing. If you're going to build a repu- robust application, it's just easier to have a reliable structure that you know is always going to be there rather than trust um, uh, that the classes are always going to be properly applied and not get lost. And, uh, and it's just an fa- extra faff to, to, to put them on all the time when you could just have an element that says what it is. Yep. Okay, so then that's, so that's how it takes us from structured to intelligent. Now, from intelligent to adaptive is, again, in the content, how much of your language is talking about situations, personas, locations, and other contextual specifics so that your content 
can adapt to those situations. So you could have intelligent content that said, this is, a, this is a product description, here are the features, here are the key features, here are some feature details, some extended text, but you're still in a everybody gets everything world. So an example might be in the, you know, the product description example you were, you were talking about, um, some features might only be available in the North American version of a product and capturing that in the markup in a way that's possible to, you know, evaluate programmatically and create multiple variations of the, of the product sheet. That would be an example of something adaptive. You're getting there. Yeah. So that's, okay. that's Closer. going in the adaptive direction. Um, and, and these are, there's no clear line, you know, there's no, you know, threshold where you add two more attributes and you go, okay, now I'm intelligent as opposed to structured, or now I'm adaptive as opposed to intelligent. Uh, that that's this is a continuum. Um, but people who are saying we're doing adaptive content have focused on that kind of thing, and they're really kind of trying to make that a, a central uh, as, aspect of their philosophy of how they're doing their content. So they're going to think about um, region, but they're also going to think about um, person, you know, how, how much background do they have? Where, well, how well do they know us? Where did they come in from? You know, what was the referring URL? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, what call to action did they click before they got here? And then you can have multiple potential values and uh, present different messaging to this person when, when they engage with you. So a very simple one would be a logged in user versus a not, not logged in user. Um, if you're if they're logged in, you might know all sorts of things about them, and you could fine tune the content of a product description to be more suitable for them. And it seems like one of the things that naturally goes along with this approach is the idea of capturing. Um, I guess it's moving closer to like the essence of what a particular piece of content is and is supposed to be about, without thinking about the particular display mode you're authoring for. Like, you know, you. you inherent in that um, in- inherent in that adaptive approach is the idea that you could be presenting many different kinds of variations of it based on all sorts of different situations and that means you need to store and capture and annotate like a superset of the content rather than just a page or a mobile view or a you know th- those kinds of variations uh, I'm glad that we got that on on recording because it happens to us all the time, <laughs> but we've never documented it before. Now we have. Uh, yes, and in fact, if you uh, if you Google me um, in the last few postings we've done, I someone asked me how, what is intelligent content, and I said just put a, put aside all the tech and all the devices and all of these kind of esoteric things and think about intelligent content is. Um, is formalizing and distilling your content's essence. Mm-hmm. You know, what is this thing? How does it relate to the other things? And write it down. And, what is the platonic you know, form of product sheet for you? <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, I, I, I said, I think that that's really what it, the, the intelligent content thing is. It's about putting the humanity and the, the, the normal sense back into content. Um, that's how we think of things. Uh, I like to say that it's, it's an accident of our tools and our platforms that when you write down a feature description or a phone number, it loses its feature descriptionness. It loses its semantic value the minute you record it. There's that's nothing silly. inherently meaning about, meaningful about unordered list. Exactly. And so 
why should a f- list of features stop being a list of features just because we put them into, into a database or a repository? So intelligent content is bringing back the normal logic of content and explaining it to the computer. And then adaptive layers on top of that and starts to think about how to leverage that in different scenarios in different contexts. And if necessary, putting, um, enhancing the, you know, the basic intelligent structured platonic form of the content with hinting and metadata about how certain things might be utilized in different contexts. Absolutely. Exactly. So, um, I, I, I use an anecdote, which is, um, They've done a little bit of adaptation off of a base of an intelligent content, and the effects were so fantastic. So I'm getting, I'm in Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands, and I'm, I've been traveling for seven hours. It's one o'clock in the morning. I have a keynote to deliver in less than 10 hours. I rock out of the station, and of course, I do my Facebook social check-in saying, guys, I'm in Utrecht. And uh, Facebook pops up and says, here are three restaurants near you that are open late. And I go, oh, thank you, Facebook, for throwing ads at me. Which is not something that you say very often. <laughs> but, but like that, that takes into account a, a bunch of different pieces of contextual information. It's the fact that in local time, um, you know, it, it, it's late. Where, you know, mm-hmm. where you are, what time it is locally, the fact that you're probably traveling and, you know, either where you're at or, you know, the, the differential between where you normally are and where you're at, you know, it, suggesting restaurants probably makes sense. There's, there's a lot of things that go into um, deciding what appears there. And it's also a great example of the, uh, the value of the intelligent bit because it's not bringing me three links to three web pages. It's pulling out um, logo uh, style of restaurant, you know, um, Asian, uh, Asian fusion, Italian, Mexican, um, the name of the restaurant and the distance to me in, in meters and kilometers. You know, and, and that's actually interesting because I know um, just last week we were, I, you know, when we were, talking about getting this podcast together, we had a bit of a chat about like, um, you know, micro data and the kind of stuff that uh, search engines like Google are starting to bubble up into search results directly. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on in that, like the idea that, you know, somebody searches for your business and Google might be able to pull up actual store hours in the search results page, not just point them to your hours of operation page and that there's a lot of power in that but like it also changes a lot of the ways we're used to measuring the success of a website or you know a digital project because if that means that no one's actually coming to my web page but we are getting business because they're learning my hours and they're finding out about my product without even hitting you know the site itself um you know that I guess that forces us to start thinking about what our real actual metrics and, and success indicators are rather than just relying on like page views. I think the the issue is that when you go to an omni-channel model, um, I, or um, I'll say I'll say multi-channel because I shouldn't use omni-channel without defining it and I don't have time. So <laughs> um, when you're talking about m- delivering on more than one channel, you can't use a measurement system that was built for one channel. Mm-hmm. So you can't use web analytics for websites when you're when you're talking about content. So the whole analytics world is about to get turned on its head because they're like a couple of years ago they st- they all 
we got this rush of enthusiasm right around when the book came out, which was very nice for me, um, with this rush of enthusiasm of people saying, oh, well, we, we don't want to manage pages. We don't want to manage websites. We want to manage content. And then we want to be able to repurpose that in all sorts of different ways. And now they're, uh, they haven't quite got, figured it out yet, but they're about to go, oh, crap, we don't know how to measure content because we've only been measuring pages <laughs> yes yeah and, and as far as i know like at least right now there's no way to measure the number of people who saw your store hours because of uh micro data enabled search on google but you know they could actually be driving into your store instead of just looking at your web page so yeah it, it, it's it, it's interesting how we, we seem to go like in these industry um, seasons of like suddenly we have tons and tons of tools for measuring certain kinds of results, but then we realize there's stuff that's slipping through the cracks and isn't being measured. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there's there's a sort of a rolling realization washing across the market, and it all has to do with this from one format to many, from one output to many, and the implications of that come come in waves. So I see people. It, it's amazing, you know, if you've been in this interest, doing this for a long time, like I have, it's been 15 years and you're still seeing those same light bulbs go off of, oh, I've got to separate presentation from content. <laughs> ah, I've got, to, I've got to break my content up into modules so that I can reuse it. And then now that I've got these modules, I, got, I have to manage the relationships between modules. So how do I do that in my system, that, which has only been based on big blocky chunks and then now how do I publish them and then how do I measure so that you see this kind of uh, they get from the from the earliest thing of I'm not just making a, a a page anymore and it goes through the entire process and each kind of step through the process from creation to management to delivery to measurement seems to take a couple of years mm -hmm. and then wash slowly from you know the smartest fastest uh, companies out to the mass market, which takes another 10 to 15 years. So that, that, that raises an interesting question for me. You know, this idea of, you know, things washing out from the, um, you know, the, I guess the innovative companies that, you know, dive in and do their big content transformation project and stuff like that. What does that look like for smaller organizations? I mean, do, does do the benefits of these kinds of approaches scale down in addition to scaling up? Absolutely. Um, I'm writing uh, a white paper right now with uh, with SDL that's going to be out in a, probably a couple months. And I use some examples where I'm talking about uh, omni-channel delivery, which I'll have to define now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm also mentioning how to do omni-channel omni and adaptive on a budget. So omni-channel is the... Is the um, strategy and delivery aspect of, of this whole thing. Because so you move away from, from uh, creating just for one format, and then you start saying, okay, well, what am I creating for? And that takes the focus away from your channels and puts the focus on the, on the user. The intent. So, like, uh, what do yeah. they want? What do you want to accomplish? Rather than where do we happen to be pushing it? Exactly. So as opposed to having, this is the social media team, and this is the web team, and this is the events and print team. Uh, we have the communications team, and everybody's got to be joining up their, their work so that the human being on the other end of this is having a coherent, continuous story going through it rather than 
speaking to these disjointed um, teams. And you can, you know, you've, we've all felt it. We've all felt going on to a digital um, uh, contact point and then having to phone somebody up and they have no idea who we are <laughs> or getting transferred between two different departments and so on and so on. Customers are not good at integrating this stuff. Omnichannel is about not, not only putting your stuff out on, all the, on many channels, but using channels in concert, in harmony, to tell unified stories. So you can move across channels and they're enforcing each other rather than simply either reproducing the same stuff or even worse, <laughs> reproducing clashing or conflicting stuff. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, you know, even, you know, in small organizations, the, the two common patterns I see is, you know, very spotty cross-channel um, promotion, like uh, something will only be promoted on their Facebook page. It won't get something on, you know, the front page of their website, or they may have a, a neglected Twitter account that doesn't even mention it. And the alternative to that is if you actually interact with an organization on multiple fronts, the minute something happens, bam, there's like 18 identical posts coming in via an email blast, Twitter, Facebook, you know, RSS yeah, feeds exactly. and stuff like that. It's like, okay, I get it already. It's just and, copy and pasted it across everything. Right. And not even necessarily leveraging the unique aspects of those different channels. Mm -hmm. So the original question was, how does this look for a small company to actually do it? And I have seen some examples. So uh, one I really liked was a company called Thread, and they were some university students who made this app, and they made a dating app. And uh, what they did with a dating app is they realized, okay, we're going to try to launch a dating app. What is make or break? People. We got to get people on this app or else they don't have anybody to date. So <laughs> what they did is they, um, they launched the app. But they tied it in with offline uh, events. So they, they said, okay, we're going to do a launch event. What you do have to do is we're going to expose stages of content. So you can download the app. You can just fill out a profile. That's it. Put up some photos. Put up your details. And then you're good. And that filled-in profile on your smartphone is your ticket for entry to this launch event, like yeah. a live physical launch event. Very crafty. Exactly. So then they've got all the people using the app. They're guaranteed to have their app. They're guaranteed to have it on their phones. They're guaranteed to have their phones charged up and they're physically in the same location. Go nuts. So that's, that is an omni-channel campaign. It's just really, pun it's boxing clever. So it's using the tiny amount of resource they had across channels and thinking about the user journey and needs and saying, okay, where, do, where can we plug in? Where can we add value? Instead of, instead of what we often do, which is sitting back and saying, all right, what do we want the user to do and how do we entice them with, you know, by putting cookies along the path to bring them into grandma's house so we can cook them. So we're trying um, to get them to follow the sales funnel or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And we just kind of put up, put, try to put them on rails so that they'll, that they'll do what we want. I think good omnichannel approaches that scale both up and down say, okay, what is this person doing in their life? Who are we trying to address? What are they tr going to be doing anyway? How can we insert our, our brand value proposition into that? And that doesn't necessarily cost a lot of money. It just means thinking about them, not about yourself. And and that kind of approach also makes it a lot easier to identify those weird situations where you may end up just flat out spamming someone with, um, uh, I guess, 
an unintelligently applied um, cross-channel approach. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll give you one other example, which, uh, which I've been using in my workshops, actually, which you mentioned at the intro. Um, the Content Marketing Institute, which hosted my adaptive content articles, the ones that got really big last year, um, they do a podcast as well. I hope I'm not plugging the competition or anything. <laughs> but uh, they do a podcast as well. And, and they, that podcast has named sections. So they ask all the speakers about their favorite book. They ask all the speakers about the, the piece of advice they got, which they keep to this day, um, what they think is happening in the market now, what they think is going to happen in the future. So they have these named sections. So basically, they've got a semantic model of a podcast. Oh, I like that. Then what that means is they can chunk up the, the, both the recordings and the transcripts against keywords and, and then say, okay, what are all the favorite books of our most famous uh, interviewees? And then you've what, got a reading list. and Exactly. You can publish it out as a reading list. You can take the best pieces of advice and you can put that into a little you know, newsletter post or whatever it is you wanted. You could hand it out at a conference. You could put um, uh, you know, my favorite book or whatever on the leaflet at the conference when I'm speaking there in the conference event brochure. You know, you have all this potential by, by just putting a semantic model behind it. And eventually, you could chunk it up and have people go on and make themselves a podcast and, and uh, in either text or audio version and say, I want to know what women in content strategy in Europe are saying and then gather that, all that up. You know, what do they think the future is going to be like? So just, just by having a reasonably simple semantic model – you can suddenly allow people to adapt the content to their own desires and own interests in a way that you couldn't if you had just um, if you had just kind of done a, a traditional monolithic block. And that's interesting too because that uh, that I'm trying to figure out what how how the best to capture it. it, it there's the uh, pure, and it's cheap. It, it, there's the purely like. Um, the standard descriptive model of like what is a podcast it would be guest question answer you know stuff like that yeah. um but starting to talk about the things that are unique about how we approach podcast what is unique to this particular podcast the essence of that um that's where i guess the the unique brand comes in um it, it's not related to podcasting but there's actually a, a client that we recently worked with um I think I'll, I'll have to double check if we can mention it, but it's, it's um, Bravo TV and uh, Oxygen in the United States. Uh, there are two um, cable channels, and mm -hmm. they do a lot of reality television. Um, and they were talking, they were trying to figure out, you know, because they have you know similar models but different audiences, how they could you know reuse a lot of the work that they've done in terms of infrastructure um, across, across the two brands. Yes, across the two brands, okay. um, and it made a lot of sense. But one of the th interesting things that we found when we were digging in was that um, there were some very, very subtle differences that reflected brand differences just in how, they're, how they modeled the structure of their content. Like, for example, um, uh, the idea of a season and a particular 
goal or contest um, is really core to the way a lot of Bravo um, TV reality shows work, like um, Top Chef or something like that. You know, there's a contest mm -hmm. going on and there's all these participants sort of racing to the goal. Whereas um, on Oxygen, it's very personality centric. And that's where people usually often come in and like that's sort of their, their primary touch point for finding different shows or episodes or whatever. So how they had modeled um, episodes and the way that guests related to seasons and episodes differed wildly between the two properties, even though on the surface they were very, very similar, just because of those differences in like, you know, what their what their primary audience touch points were and how they thought about that. And that reminds me of the idea of like breaking down that podcast into, you know, book recommendations and stuff like that, rather than just, you know, generic stuff like guest question answer. It requires a, a deeper understanding of what's unique about the way that you approach a particular domain. That that's the core of the whole intelligent content thing, is that it has it has to do with going deeper and getting more granular. You know, when you you posted ages ago. Um, I think one of the first things that I ever co uh, not um, peer reviewed for you was uh, that battle for the body field, mm -hmm. and that was about you know we got to get in there. We have to go deeper. We just can't have heading metadata bunch of stuff. Um, because when we when we do get in there, yeah, we discover what is what is intrinsic to how we communicate as a company, and then everybody becomes consistent on it. Because if you don't do that, then you're going to have the bulk of it is consistent, and then twenty to thirty to fifty percent of of the authors are going to be running off doing their own thing, and that's where uh, they would most benefit from help. Exactly. So it's not good for the company because they you know they're. They have to maintain all these slightly different ways of doing things. And uh, it's not good for clients because clients don't see value in that unless it's done for a really good reason. And if it is done for a really good reason, then it should become part of the, an option within the formal standard. Yep. If, if it's important enough that you need to keep doing this, then maybe you should actually make it official. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a fine-tuning thing between how descriptive do we make it without making it restrictive. You know, we don't want to create models that are so fine-tuned that the minute somebody has a good reason to do something else, they have to break the whole thing. Yep. Uh, and, that, and that's a black art. You know, that, we've been doing this for 20 years. That's not solvable. because that, That's where you, it you, has to vary for different projects and different needs. Absolutely. And there's, there's no one right answer. But there, there is a consistent... Uh, truth, which is you definitely have to go deeper than most people are going now. Yes. So you mentioned uh, workshops that you're going to be that you're going to be doing um, later in May. Um, tell me a little bit more about this. What's going on? Where is it? What What are you covering? Right. So I'm going to be doing adaptive content, and I'm going to be focusing on exactly this: what we've been discussing, the modeling of content, and how do we look at content differently and take our assets, break them up, give them meaningful names, and um, I'll, I'll allow ourselves to have some sort of guidance or documentation that says, this is how we're going to do content. In the same way that you would have um, a, a style guide or um, you know, a set of wireframes or specifications that describe everything else about, about your content, this is for the content itself, the semantic intelligent backend structures that are going to power everything else. 
there's not a lot of people who I think have a very good methodology for this. Uh, I know I have my own, and there's a couple of more out in the market who you know they have their own approaches, which I also respect. But honestly, this is a very um, it's hard to come by to people who have any way to make all this complexity at all sensible. So people are really liking it. Uh, so I call it adaptive content modeling uh, for omnichannel user experiences. And I'm doing that in oh, Redmond, Washington, over at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond. Oh, cool. That's May 18th uh, and 19th, right? Correct. And um, then, and for that one, I can actually offer your listeners a discount code. Oh, fantastic. Yes. Anybody who's listening to this podcast uh, can get in for 10% cheaper using ICH10 when they register Fantastic. on the registration page. Well, thank you very much. Oh, my, my pleasure. And you're also <laughs> going to be at Confab Central too, right? Yes. Confab Central is going to be, I'm very excited. This is my first Confab in North America. I've only been to Confab Europe. And uh, that one I can't offer you a discount on, uh, but it's going to be uh, attached to one of the best conferences going. So uh, that's going to be a very good option, especially. Uh, that's in Minneapolis, and that's going to be on the 20th. And I will also be talking at the conference uh, a couple days later. And then right after that, I will be coming back to Europe, and uh, I'll be in France for the 27th. And that's going to be in the south of France, a place called Aix, which is in uh, Provence, which is a, oh. if you if you have not been to Provence in the south of France, then you should go. <laughs> but that one's going to be just for people uh, who speak French, because it's going to be in French. Uh, that same discount code will, will work for the Aix and Provence event for 10% off. Well, awesome. Um, well, I think that sounds really, really cool. I'm sad that I won't be able to make it to uh, the Confab Central session too, because uh, I, I I love Confab. I'm I'm I am going to be actually doing a a workshop at Confab Intensive later this year um, on the battle for the body field, talking about oh, that, awesome. you know, that semi-structured stuff um, and how it relates to narrative flow. There's there's a lot of interesting connections. And oh. as we talked about at the beginning of the show, I'm very excited about like the the lines of communication that are there between these like domains that spent so long not talking to each other. Oh, absolutely. Oh, we should, we should, uh, this is a teaser for, for our next collaboration. Um, <laughs> we should get together and exchange uh, workshop notes. Absolutely. Like to, I'm, cause I'm, I'm sad I'm going to miss that. Well, I will, um, I will, I'm sure be crossing paths again in the future. And thank you very much for taking the time to uh, appear on the show. And, uh, again, anybody listening, check out those workshops. They sound really fantastic. A uh, pleasure. Thank you for your time and, uh, hope to do it again sometime. Thanks for listening to Insert Content Here. If you'd like to catch up on our archives or keep up on our new episodes, visit us at lullabot.com slash ideas slash podcasts slash insert content here. You can also visit us directly at insertcontenthere.com. Mm-hmm.